Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. It's the podcast for lifelong learners. We learn from anything and everything. What? What was that positive? I almost forgot it for a second there. Uh oh. Also, my name is Caleb Mason. My name is not. It's Todd Hicksonball, aka the Todd Father. And that I'm, was really awkward. Yeah, I'm still trying to get over and that. I'm still recovering a little bit from being sick. Well, okay. You can only use that excuse for so long. I only use it for this podcast and then I'm done. All right. Then you'll be done. Yes. You promise? Anyway, we have a great episode. You didn't say you'd pinky promise. We have a great episode in store for you today. Today, we talk with Dr. Tasha Yurich, who is an organizational psychologist, researcher, New York Times bestselling author of the book Insight. And, and Caleb's been fangirling about this book for weeks. Uh, that's because I absolutely love this book so much. Do you love, one, love it? I do. It's one of my favorite books that I have read. Um, in a, honestly, in a, in a really long time. And um, you haven't read it yet, unfortunately, but you need to get on that because it's super, it's super good. Now, uh, actually, you didn't even get to be a part of this conversation. No, I didn't. So you missed out. But anyway, I got to edit it. So that's fine. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the person who is making this person, the The person who's making the person. Yes. No. That makes sense. The person who is making this episode possible. Who is it? Is Sam Massey? Of course it is, because you know that we have this new podcast music that he created for us, and he Which is dope. And he is sponsoring this episode. And so, if you have any music needs, whether it be for TV or radio or a video that your company or organization is making, or it could be for a podcast that you need music to as well, do he it. He is your person, and so to except, reach out to him, you can't have our music. No, you can't have our music, but. You can reach out to him and find all of his contact info in the show notes. Do it. Now. I say do it a lot. You do say it a lot. Now, before we get to our interview. Is it time? It is time. It's time for our Learner's Corner recommended resource of the week. I'm so ready for this, Caleb. You have it this week. What do we have for our resource? Okay. So my resource is a podcast episode. Is it an episode or a podcast? It's a podcast episode. Is it a good podcast? Yes. Or is this just a good episode? It's both. Because those two things are not mutually. It's from Carrie Newhoff. Okay. Which and one? It, and it is the round table oh, that he did God. with Clay Scroggins and Brad Lominick. Everybody's talking about this thing. Future Trends, the Attractional Church, the Rise of Charismatic Churches, and the Most Difficult Parts of Leadership. And it's been out for a little while now. But uh, I've listened to it multiple times, and it is such a good episode. Yeah, I mean, it was it was great. Um, those three guys are great. Yes, all we've had all three of them we've on the had podcast all three of them too. On the podcast separately, never well together. Too. That'd be a that'd be a fun episode. That would be a fun episode. So to check it out, check out our show notes. Do it now. As we mentioned earlier in the episode today. I'm talking with Tasha Yurich about her book, Insight. And so here is our conversation. Well, Tasha, we are so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to talk about your book, Insight, because as, as I've been reading through it, um, I, I really think that there's, it's up there with some of the best self-awareness um, books that I've ever read, because I think that's a difficult subject for people 
um, to just get their to get their minds around. I want to ask you about that. Um, but before you you were writing an interesting statement that I want to ask you about that doesn't necessarily pertain to insight, but I thought um, it just really made me think. And you talk about um, how people tell you that one of your strengths is making the fuzzy concepts accessible and actionable. And I think that's something that I tend to struggle with myself. And so I just wanted to ask you, you know, what's, what helps you do that? What helps you take the intangible and make it more tangible? Wow. That, I don't think I've ever been asked that question. I'm not sure if I have a really great answer to start with. (laughs) You know, I think, let me say this, what I would suggest is, um, don't try to overcomplicate the way we, um, uh, use these models in daily life. You know, I think some people expect perfection. You know, if there's a, a principle that they want to live by or they want to become a better listener or a better coach is even just looking at it as an incremental process where if I can get 1% better at this every day or every week, I'm in really good shape. So I think for me, it's it's maybe distilling it to a small action that I can wrap my arms around and then, you know, helping people understand that it's not an overnight process. I think that's kind of the philosophy that I use in the work that I do, uh, you know, not just in in the writing I do, but when I'm working with executives in my coaching and consulting work. Mm -hmm. So like I said, I want to talk about your book, Insight, and it's really uh, a lot of it has to deal with self-awareness. And so would you be able to just define kind of what you mean by self-awareness so that going forward, we can all be on the same page? That is an excellent place to start because in my experience, it's one of those words like communication where everybody has a different definition of it. So mm-hmm. the, the background on this project is that about five or six years ago, I started to become interested in, in the science that existed on self-awareness. And I had seen you know, these amazing transformations in the executives I was coaching as leaders, as people. Um, but I, I didn't really know what we knew about self-awareness scientifically. There's a lot of, you know, we read articles and we say, get in touch with yourself or we say, get feedback. But our research team really wanted to understand what is it? Where does it come from? Why do we need it? And how do we get more of it? So the first thing we did to your question was to say, you know, what the heck is this self-awareness thing anyway? Mm-hmm. And I sort of naively thought that we would be able to just reach into the research, you know, see what was there, do a little bit more work ourselves and come up with a beautiful answer p- pretty quickly. But it actually took us almost a year. <laughs> so here's <laughs> here's simplicity on the other side of complexity. The, yeah. the definition of self-awareness we uh, came up with on our team is the will and the skill to know who you are and how others see you. Mm-hmm. And to drill down into that a little bit more specifically, there are two types of self-awareness that we have to have, um, both of them, to actually be considered self-aware and to see ourselves clearly. The first is something we named internal self-awareness, which essentially means knowing who you are, what makes you tick, what are your values, seeing yourself from the inside out. And then the second type is external self-awareness, which is knowing how other people see you. And sort of definitionally, what I think is the most interesting thing that came out of that whole process is the fact that those two types of self-awareness are completely unrelated. Mm -hmm. So just because you are maybe excelling in one doesn't mean that you're naturally going to excel in the other. And um, it provides us all with, I think, a really good roadmap of how to develop our our self-knowledge. Yeah. And, you know, I think the thing about self-awareness is I don't think anyone listening to this would go, self-awareness is not important. No no one is saying that. Um, but at least what I found in 
you know, a lot of my conversations with um, friends and even even colleagues is that we say that it's important, but we don't make it a priority. We don't make it a priority of like actively, you know, gaining more self-awareness about ourselves, whether you were saying internally or externally. And so why, why would you say that self-awareness is something that we need to make more of a priority and more of a, like a top priority? Yeah, just to flow from that point, uh, I, I think what I see most often is not just a sort of a lack of a commitment to personally developing our self-awareness, because it's hard and it takes time and requires courage, but it's way easier to just talk about how unself-aware everyone else is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. that's what I see really often. And I think, you know, it feels good. It makes yeah. us feel good because they're not self-aware. Um, and what I always tell people is, is it, we have to channel that into our own journey. And there's a very good business case and really life case for it. So uh, when we, again, examine this empirically, what we found is self-awareness, there's almost no positive outcome that self-awareness doesn't help put into motion. So that's why I call it the meta skill. It's the skill underlying all of the, the you know, requirements and competencies we need to be successful as leaders in the 21st century. So people who are self-aware uh, are better communicators, they're more confident, they're more ethical, they perform better in their jobs, they get more promotions, they're better leaders. There's even some evidence actually just starting to emerge that leaders who are self-aware at the top levels of companies uh, see better financial results. And there's also evidence that companies with large numbers of self-aware employees see the same thing. So um, that's kind of the professional side of it. But what I, what I love about the skill is it's so foundational that working on it at work is going to spill over into home and vice versa. So people who see themselves clearly have been shown to be in healthier marriages. They um, are better parents. They raise more mature children. They have better relationships all around. So from my perspective, I, I always laugh a little bit when people say, oh, self-awareness, it's a soft skill. It's nice to have, <laughs> you know, but we can only be as good at any of those things I just mentioned as we are self-aware. So by your listeners knowing how important this is, that puts them ahead of, you know, most people already. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that doing all of this research and studying self-awareness has had a huge impact on you. Where has, where has you know, studying this self-awareness made the greatest impact in your life? <laughs> it's funny. Sometimes people ask me even, an even more specific version of that question, which is, what has this taught you about your <laughs> self-awareness? <laughs> right? And I always say, like, well, how long do you have? Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, uh, one of the most stunning findings from our research program is that 95% of us believe that we're self-aware, but only 10 to 15% of us actually are. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the joke I always make is that means that on a daily basis, 80% of us are lying to ourselves <laughs> about whether we're lying to ourselves. <laughs> and before I started this project, you know, I thought I knew a lot about self-awareness. I thought I was a model of self-awareness for everyone else to follow. And, you know, everybody kind of knows the rest of the story. Probably it never turns out that way. I think in some way, authors are drawn to focus on topics where they need to grow personally. So I've had a lot of, um, you know, sometimes... Uh, very difficult, sometimes hilarious lessons that, you know, for me has helped me evolve. And in our research, we looked at people who didn't start out self-aware, but who became highly self-aware. And we called them self-awareness unicorns because mm -hmm. we were worried we wouldn't find any. <laughs> but they have they have taught me more in, in researching this and learning from them than I ever thought was possible. So this has been, you know, selfishly and personally, a really amazing journey as well. 
Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to get into, you know, what are some steps that people can do to become more self-aware? But before that, what would you say are the common barriers that keep people from being self-aware? Because I'm sure that as you've done through this, you've kind of, you've probably established patterns and you even write about that in your book too. But what are the common patterns or blind spots or barriers that you see to people gaining more self-awareness in their lives? There are so many. Let me just briefly focus on two. Mm -hmm. So the first is that, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, the way humans are built creates blind spots about a lot of the things we think and feel and do. And there's, again, a ton of research on this that probably is too boring to go into. But but in a nutshell, we have trouble objectively viewing uh, ourselves and, and sort of how we're showing up. And sort of layered upon that, I think, which is even the more dangerous part, is our unfounded confidence that we know ourselves well. So if you take those two things together, you know, we sort of live this life of, of blissful ignorance if we don't do the work. It's like refined sugar. You, you buy a can or you buy a, a package of red vines and you eat the whole thing. And you might feel great for a couple of minutes, but in the long term, that's really going to hurt your health and, and success. So, you know, from that perspective, I think by realizing that we're not self-aware, we remove the first and probably biggest barrier. The second thing uh, to think about is the world we live in, the society that is taunting us almost to become more self-absorbed and less self-aware. And in my work, I call that the cult of self. It's this idea that, you know, everyone is special and deserving. And just because we want something, we should have it. And those forces are powerful. They, they affect all ages. They affect all cultures. It doesn't matter what industry you work in, what kind of life you lead. We're all being influenced by these factors. So part of the process is to be very mindful about that influence. And that's part of what helps you remove that barrier is just saying, you know, for example, if I just spent three quarters of this conversation talking about myself, um, is that an indication maybe that I could do a little bit better job in the future? Mm -hmm. What would you say might be some other indicators that people can use to uh, almost self-identify as, okay, I think I need to become more self-aware in this particular area of life? That is a fabulous question. Um, you know, it's hard because the people who need it the most are the least likely to know they need it. Mm -hmm. uh, two, two answers. So one is, the default should be assume that you have way more to learn than you think you do. Um, but the second is to just examine what does your life look like right now? What does your work look like? Um, are, if you're a leader in a formal leadership role and you are marching forward, do you look behind you and see people back there or is it lonely? Um, I worked with the CEO once of a very large publicly traded uh, energy company, and he said, if you're a leader and you're charging forward and you turn around and there's no one there, that's called feedback. <laughs> so, so to, and, and even to ask for other questions, like, did I apply for this promotion that I thought I had in the bag and I didn't get it? Or did I get an unexpectedly negative performance appraisal? Really, anywhere in your life where the predicted or even hoped for result wasn't the same as the real result is an indicator doesn't necessarily mean that your self-awareness was an issue but i think uh, you know looking at ourselves is always the first place we should start mm -hmm. so let's say that um that for like i know somebody who needs more self-awareness in their life 
and um, or you like I see a particular area in someone that I know that they're not aware of. What advice would you give to me or any person who is in that situation? Is it just as simple as, you know what, I need to tell them, or is it more complicated than that? Oh, it's so complicated. <laughs> and it's so funny because, again, that's that's probably the most common question I get is like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know I should be working on my self-awareness, but I have this coworker. Oh my God, he's so much worse than I am. <laughs> and you know, so so a couple of things for for people to think about. So the, the first is, it's always better, in my opinion, to focus your energy on building your own self-awareness and success than it is to try to make other people more self-aware. As the saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. But that being said, we we live in a world where these people really are everywhere. I, I did a survey um, for an article I wrote recently for Harvard Harvard Business Review. We found that almost everyone who responded to our survey worked with at least one unaware person, and almost half of our respondents worked with more than four. Wow. So if you think about that on a daily basis, that's pretty uh, mind numbing, right? Mm -hmm. So, but instead of trying to change that person, what I would suggest people do is think about ways that they can better manage that situation for themselves. So maybe we can make that article available to your listeners somehow. Yep. Um, there's some techniques you can use like reframing and there's a tool that I talk about called the laugh track. Uh, probably don't have time to go into that, but maybe we can make that accessible to everybody if they're interested. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes for anyone who wants to check that article out. Um, awesome. Because this is definitely, like, like we were talking about, this is definitely an issue that literally affects every single person. It's crazy. They're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing I want to I want to ask you about um, is that there there are times to where we have to give um, difficult truths, whether it's someone who is asking feedback for us. Um, or, um, it's just, it's just a hard truth that we need to communicate. And a lot of the stories that you were telling in here, um, it has to do with you giving hard truths to people, especially in the role that you're currently in as well. And so I'm just curious, have, have you learned any techniques or tips that help you communicate difficult or hard truths to people, especially people who are, um, over you in the organization or in leadership? Yeah, my job is very cool, um, but it can, it, from the outside, it can look intimidating because in some ways, I'm hired to tell very powerful, very successful people the truth when everyone else is afraid to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's interesting because to a certain extent, you just have to get used to it and you have to do it for a certain amount of time and, and learn your lessons from it. But what I found is, you know, let me think of an example of a... Um, Somebody I, I am coaching right now who I, I think is on the track to be a CEO of a probably major corporation. Mm -hmm. He runs a huge business right now. Um, sitting down and giving him the feedback, I was framing it in the context of, listen, we wouldn't even be working together unless you were a superstar. And my job is to help successful people get better. So part of it is framing the conversation. So if you're a leader and you know you have to give some tough feedback to someone, framing it in that way creates a because it creates a why the why isn't oh somebody brought in this con you know consultants and her job is to tell me why i'm awful it's really here's some information that we get to choose ultimately you get to choose what to do with that will help you be more successful the second lesson i learned um <laughs> i've seen 
I've seen every reaction in the book to difficult feedback. I, I usually, especially if it's a CEO, I will speak to sometimes 30 people that work with this person. It would, might be board members, direct reports. Um, I'll even talk to family members. That's something that my friend Marshall Goldsmith taught me. Um, and ultimately, <laughs> you know, there it's hard and it's hard information. And part of it is just accepting that that response will take place. So I had a guy punch a wall once. I had someone once crying so much that we had to take like a 30 minute break to come back. But both of those people had amazing transformations in their level of effectiveness. So someone's immediate reaction doesn't necessarily mean that that feedback can't help them get better. So those would be kind of the two pieces of advice I might give. So I want to hit on something that you talked about, and you talk about it in your book too. Um, but the, I think self-awareness is something that we typically think about whenever it comes to the workplace, but it also has its place amongst family. Can you talk a little bit about that and the role that self-awareness works in family dynamics? Sure. I mean, to me, I don't really see a distinction even between work and, and you know, life. <laughs> I think yeah. it's funny when people talk about work and life because it's all life, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, here, here's an example. So I, I, I worked with a, an executive once who um, would regularly belittle his team members. And they told me that really clearly when I interviewed them. And when I took this feedback back to him, he said, I don't do that. And I said, well, let's look at some examples of where you did that. And so I finally got him to acknowledge, okay, I do do that. But then, and the next thing people always want to say is, but I'm only like this at work. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, let's do an experiment. <laughs> I think he had two teenage kids and a wife. And I said, why don't you go home and talk to your family and share the feedback that you got with them and ask what they think about it. And he said, oh, yeah, 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 okay. I mean, they're not going to say that, but but I'll do that just to humor you, basically. And sure enough, he came back and his family said, yeah, you do the exact same thing to us. So I almost don't even like it. to. I don't even like to separate those two things. Certainly, there are sides of us maybe that come out at work that are different than the sides of us that come out at home. But when it comes to the way we're coming across to others, I see a tremendous amount of consistency, which is good because then if you want to work on a behavior, you're going to see the benefit in, in all areas of your life. Mm -hmm. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk more about um, the internal and external self-awareness that you were talking about at the beginning. Um, what would you say are one or two steps that people can do to become more internally self-aware? So let me give you one tool that I really liked. Um, again, that we, we were trying to figure out what these people who didn't start out as highly self-aware were doing differently. So, and a lot of it kind of flew in the face of common wisdom. Mm -hmm. So for internal awareness, I expected them to say, oh yes, I go to therapy three times a week and I journal two hours a day. And um, strangely, they actually spent less time reflecting than most people do. Mm -hmm. But what they did differently was they used that time very strategically and very smartly. And almost every single one of them um, that we did these in-depth interviews with did something that we named the daily check, something like what we named the daily check-in. And it's basically giving yourself five minutes at the end of every day, whether it's on your commute, whether it's, you know, when you're laying in bed, trying to get, you know, your mind right for the next day to, to ask yourself basically three questions. So the first is, what went well today? The second is, what didn't go so well today? And the third is, how can I be smarter tomorrow? And what I love about this discovery is 
by doing this exercise, it essentially prevents you from overthinking things. Mm -hmm. And that was a really common finding in our research that was very surprising, which is, you know, if we spend too much time self-reflecting, we can start to get spun up. We can start to believe things that aren't really true, or we can actually make ourselves less self-aware by overthinking things or, or more uh, anxious, more depressed. And so that focused process of just five minutes of a daily check-in every day can make a huge difference. And I think that was probably the most common regular practice that we found. The second most common practice was uh, mindfulness. And there's a lot here, and I'm certainly not an expert in mindfulness. I am. Uh, I have done a lot of work on where it intersects with self-awareness. But what some of your listeners might find interesting is meditation is not the only way to be mindful. And again, this is probably outside the scope of our conversation, but I talk about several tools in Insight that will help people who might be type A, like me, to say, how could I sit still for five minutes, practice some of these mindfulness tools just by noticing and being aware of what's going on around them. Um, so I think any practice of mindfulness was another very consistent tool that our self-awareness unicorns employed for their internal self-awareness. Would you be able to give just one of those tools? Because that, that was something really striking to me as I was reading through the book that that meditation wasn't the only act of mindfulness. And, you know, a lot of people who are listening right now, they are that type A. So what might be one practice out of that that they can start doing today? So I love them all equally. So I'm just going to sort of <laughs> randomly pick whichever one that comes to okay. mind. <laughs> um, so, so here's one. So comparing and contrasting. So if we back up to the definition of mindfulness, which is essentially noticing new things, it opens up a wider possibility for what, you know, what it can mean to practice mindfulness. So um, in the same vein as the daily check-in, the compare and contrast tool is a way for you to get a lot of insight by maybe noticing or putting together the information you're seeing about yourself a little bit differently. So I'll give you an example. Um, it, it, I spent I spent the first five years of my career in academia. I spent the second five years of my career in the Fortune 500 world, working, you know, leading leadership development programs in, in large companies. And I had a succession of two jobs. I was in them for about two and a half years each. And, you know, I didn't really think much about it when I went from one to the other. And then when I was in the second job, it was on paper, it was my dream job. Um, but I started to get kind of restless. And I, I said something like that to my husband and he said, well, that's interesting. That's almost the exact same thing I heard from you about two and a half years into your last job. And I said, huh, that's interesting. And what I was doing was noticing something different in my experience by, by finding a similarity to something in my past. I was able to take a step back and say, okay, that's interesting. I didn't get restless when I was kind of a, a free agent in academia. I did get restless in bo both of the corporate jobs I had. And we're all different, right? We all find mm -hmm. our satisfaction and joy in different areas. And that process really was what helped me feel confident that starting my own business was really the right choice for me. Is, is For me personally, I wasn't going to feel fulfilled forever by working for someone else. And so that's an example. I think using these tools in our lives kind of makes them come alive. But the compare and contrast tool is anytime you notice something weird, you know, something, I all of a sudden I'm waking up and I'm going to my job every day and I'm unhappy. Uh, that can be, okay, when was the last time I felt like this? Or 
when do I not feel like this? Those are the, the types of questions that can help you use that tool. So on the other side, we talked about internal self-awareness. What are one or two tools that can help people become more externally self-aware? So my favorite external self-awareness tool sounds very scary when I first tell people about it. So let me just kind of give you the overview. (laughs) So it's called, um, it's borrowed from my friend whose name is Josh Meisner. He's a communications professor. And he's been using this exercise for years and years and years with, you know, thousands of his communication students. And the exercise is simple. So what you do is you pick someone in your life who you know supports you and who you want to improve your relationship with. So this could be somebody at work. It could certainly be someone uh, in in another area of your life. You take them out to lunch um, or dinner and you ask them, what is it about me that you find most annoying? And then you listen. And you don't push back. You don't try to defend and prove how wrong they are. You thank them. And you use that as an opportunity to strengthen your relationship and and probably equally important to get some data that can help you be more effective. Now, anyone who just heard that for the first time is probably sitting there like white face just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the first time I learned about this, I was in the same position and I would never ask my my clients or my readers or your listeners to do anything that I haven't done many, many times myself. And a, a couple of lessons from my personal experience with this exercise is, um, number one, it's a surprisingly positive experience. And I know that sounds wacky, but what it ends up being every time I've done it is an affirmative conversation where that person is giving you information to help you be successful. It usually ends up with a conversation about all the things that are awesome about you. And it can just be a a wonderful way to strengthen that relationship. The other thing I learned is what you hear will almost never be as bad as what you fear you will hear. So for me, the first time I did this was with my friend Mike and I intentionally picked him because he's a little crotchety and I just wanted to go like full hog and (laughs) see what would happen. Um, And I expected, you know, my it's it's like your inner insecure person is saying your friend is going to tell you that he never really liked you at all. That actually this is a great opportunity to say, um, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. And it sounds crazy when you say it out loud, but that for me was really what I was coming into that with. And the feedback he gave me was, oh, well, that's easy. I I love you in person, but I hate you on social media. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, oh, well, that's like a very, very, very narrow piece of my behavior that is totally under my control and is also Mm -hmm. not an indictment of me as a person. So for, for anyone who's listening to this who thinks that they can improve their external self-awareness, this is like a quick win. And it takes, you know, a little bit of psyching yourself up to do it. But I have literally never had anyone tell me that once they've done it, it hasn't been positive and informative. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about like groups of people or teams. What What is something that a team uh, can do to become more self-aware about what they may be lacking? So self-aware teams is, you know, it's an extension of what does it mean to be individually self-aware. So when you're individually self-aware, you are are clearly seeing sort of the person that you are, how you're coming across. If you look at it at the team level, it's the same thing. You know, a, a team comes together to achieve a set of common objectives. They create processes to achieve those objectives. They need to measure their progress to, the, to those objectives. They need to look at the assumptions they're making. They also need to look at each individual person's contribution. 
And so self-aware teams are unique in that they can they freely and frequently exchange that information. And in the book, I, I tell the story of Alan Mulally, who's a, a good friend of mine and, and has been one of my personal heroes for a very long time. Mm-hmm. He basically turned around Ford in less than five years by using those principles of, of awareness for everyone is what he calls it. And when he came into Ford, they were on track to lose $17 billion in 2006. It was going to be their worst year ever. And five years later, under his leadership, they were uh, recording $20 billion of profit. And obviously that took a lot of things and um, one should never simplify such a thing. But when I asked him to trace back, what was this, the moment that you knew that the company was going to be able to turn around? He said it was when we were able to start discussing things openly as a team. And it takes a lot of different things. Um, we've identified basically three building blocks for a self-aware team. So number one is a leader who models the way. Think about, you know, the least self-aware boss you've ever had, the the Steve Carell of the office kind of level bad. <laughs> that team was probably not self-aware. Yeah. And the reason for that is is a team can only be as self-aware as the leader. So the leader has to model that, actively seeking feedback, showing humility, admitting your mistakes, um, generally showing that you're open to uh, difficult information about yourself, right? Number two is the safety and expectation to tell the truth. And a lot of this isn't new. Um, Google's Project Aristotle, they've been looking at this for years and years about what's that magic formula for team effectiveness. And what they uncovered was it's, it's a feeling of safety that I can show up as who I am, that I can make a mistake, that I can, you know, kind of be vulnerable in front of this group of people. So that's the second. And then the third is an ongoing process to stay self-aware. So for Alan Mulally, his holy grail of this was something that he called the business process review, where he got his executive team together every Thursday at 7 a.m. And they would review 320 metrics uh, that indicated the health of the business. And they would openly discuss them. And his, his famous line, you know, if he asked one of his executives a question and they didn't know the answer, he would look at them and grin and say, that's okay. Well, I'll be here next week. <laughs> and, and just that ongoing commitment, unwavering, um, continuous commitment. It, I think we forget that. You know, we assume that if we get the team together at a retreat and we share some honest feedback that magically we're aware. And um, luckily it's not complicated to get there, but you really do have to, to do the work. Mm-hmm. So you end the book talking about how to deal with delusional people. And I feel like we all feel like we have at least one person in our lives who who seems to fit that description. What advice would you give someone for dealing with a delusional person in their life? Yeah. So again, this is this kind of goes back to a lot of what we were saying earlier with with how do we work with people who aren't self-aware. This is just mm-hmm. a, an extreme version. But I think if you're thinking about confronting this person for some reason, you know, if it's a, a spouse, we had our, our self-awareness unicorns tell us some very intensely personal stories about, you know, a parent who they finally had to confront because they literally couldn't take it anymore and have that person be in their lives. Or, you know, you've got somebody who works for you and and it literally is your job to help them be more self-aware. There are basically three questions that I uh, suggest that people ask themselves. So the first is, am I willing to accept the worst case scenario? And that can be a tough one. You know, Mm -hmm. you think about for, for the parent, the parent might not want to speak to you anymore. For the employee, the employee might 
not want to work there anymore. And I, I encourage everyone to be very clear headed about that, to say, you know, hopefully I'm going to do the work to make sure this doesn't happen. But I know that this is an inherently risky endeavor. So that's that's the first thing. The second is ask yourself, does this person have good intentions? And what I mean by that is, are they trying to be a jerk? Or are they really trying to do their best and it's not coming across the way they want it to? There are people, uh, luckily there are not very many of them, but there are people running around the world who want to make people's lives worse. And it can be an exercise in frustration and futility by trying to, to help, you know, quote unquote, help these people. We really just want to fix them. But if the person has good intentions and you feel like they might just need a different way to look at this, that can be another indicator that, you know, again, if you're willing to accept the worst case scenario, if you believe they have good intentions, then you might think about talking to them. The third question is about you, actually. It's to ask, am I the right messenger? Yeah. There are several factors that can help that shake out. You know, one of them is the power dynamic. For example, it can be really career limiting to sit your boss down and tell him he's a jerk and he probably doesn't know it. Um, but, you know, again, if, 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 if there is that trust, um, sometimes the trust can overcome it. I tell the story of a, um, a young 21-year-old pre-med student who gives her best friend's father, who's a world-renowned surgeon, um, some feedback about how he was showing up that basically changed his relationship with his daughter. So it's not impossible, but it, you have to think through what's that power dynamic? Does this person trust me? Um, will they see my feedback for what it is, which is is my support in helping them get better? The last thing I'd say is, under that heading, examine your own motives for giving this feedback. You know, I think it, we spend so much time, to, to use a, an idea from Peter Drucker, trying to prove how right we are and how smart we are, when really we should be trying to make the world better and make a positive difference. So if, if, we're, if we're not doing this with the purest of heart and with a, a support for that person and a desire for them to be better and happier, I, I would say, like, just take it off the table. Um, so those are, yeah, that's my advice that I would give for dealing with the delusional. So we have a few questions that we uh, always ask all of our guests. But before that, I just want to ask one more um, question about um, self-awareness and about your book, Insight. And what, what would you say is, you know, at stake if people refuse to uh, take this journey of self-awareness? That is, I love that question. I think what's at stake is failing to achieve your maximum potential performance and happiness. Mm. You know, if you imagine somebody, for example, who is in a job that they just hate, but they are scared and they're not willing to ask themselves those questions. They, they could be unhappy in their career for the rest of their career. Um, or someone, for example, who, uh, you know, a relationship that they're in ends unexpectedly because of behavior that they are not aware of. They're going to risk repeating that pattern. Or if you're uh, a leader, uh, and by the way, our research and others shows that the more senior of a leader you are, the less self-aware you tend to be, not because it's inherently a characteristic of you, but it's just the nature of your role. Um, and, and in that vein, if you're a leader and you're kind of going along your merry way and not looking at this, there is going to come a point where that will start to limit you. You know, you think about the Alan Mulallies of the world 
who say, no matter how much I know about myself, there's always more to learn. And I am a humble student of that information. Um, that's when we get these, these business success stories for the record books. And so, you know, for me, I just ask how much potential lies within you and are you willing to take a little time, a little energy and start to unearth that? Or do you want it to go forever unknown? So, what for the person I, I gotta follow this dovetail real quick. Um, so for the person who is in senior leadership, do you think they're less self-aware because people are more afraid of them? Or why would you say that is? So there's a couple reasons for that that have been uh, put forward. One is just the simple fact that there are fewer people above you. You know, mm-hmm. if you're the CEO, the board isn't working with you every day, so they, they might not have that information. Uh, and there are fewer people above you who are obligated to tell you the truth. The second is related, which is that the, the more power you, uh, you know, attain, the harder it is for people to tell you the truth. I, I tell a story of Ed Catmull, the founder of one of the founders of Pixar, and he noticed that with every you know, rise on the leadership ladder, fewer and fewer people were telling him the truth. And then the third reason is an understandable human one, which is we figure, hey, you know, I'm the senior vice president of operations. I've gotten this far. I've been this successful. Um, surely the approach I'm using is the right one. And without even being conscious of it, I think we can get locked into that. So if a senior leader is listening, would you just give them the same advice that we've already talked about um, for pursuing self-awareness? Or is there something specific to senior leaders that they can do? You know, it's. I do think that there are unique considerations, probably again, outside the scope of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the level where, you know, if, if you're at the level in your organization where when you walk in the room, casual conversation ceases, again, not because you're a bad person, not because you're not a cool guy, but because of the power you're at. Um, that's where I think it is worth considering getting some help. So, you know, you think about the the most elite athletes in the world, they have coaches, some of them have multiple coaches. Mm-hmm. And um, probably the most important thing that I would say is the best coaches help successful leaders get even more successful. So um, it, it's, I think some people see executive coaching as you know, and some companies unfortunately do this. It's the last thing they'll do before they fire someone who's not performing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the best coaches out there are the ones who will help you be even more successful. So that's that's where I think it's good to consider getting uh, professional help. Great. Well, like I said, we have a few uh, quick questions that we want to ask. And the first one is this: What's one thing that you uh, have started doing recently that is helping you either personally or professionally right now? So I am. I actually just started training for a half marathon. Mm -hmm. And what I found as a human is that when I am working out regularly, usually at a pretty high intensity, I'm um, a lot nicer to be around and I'm a lot more creative. I'm usually a better partner. And so for me, it it took me quite a while in my life to figure out the role that that plays. Um, But I'm kind of re-upping my commitment this year to, to train for something specific. Cool. What advice would you give to someone who is eager to learn? Assume that, don't assume that the more you learn, the less there is for you to know. That's great advice. If you could have everyone learn one thing, what would it be? Ask for feedback. And what are you learning right now? Well, I'm starting a a new book, actually, and it's really interesting to be a beginner. You know, you sort of think about, Every time you begin a new project, you're starting over. 
mm-hmm. um, and that's I think really energizing. So I'm I'm excited about that project. Awesome. So Tasha, I know people are want to gonna connect with you and definitely buy your book Insight, which we highly recommend. Where's the best place for them to go to do all of those things? So forget about me. Um, what I would say is if your listeners are intrigued by this and, you know, I, I commend everyone who's saying, you know, I might want to work on my self-awareness a little bit more. We developed um, totally free, no strings attached. It's a very short quiz where you fill out 14 questions that assess your internal self-awareness and then you send a survey via email to someone who knows you well and they fill out those questions for your external self-awareness. And it it only takes a couple minutes. You've got to sometimes hound them to fill it out, but um, we've had tens of thousands of people complete it without any issue. Um, But it'll, it'll tell you basically at a very, very high level where you stand and then a couple of things you can do to increase your self-awareness right away. So um, that's, and through that website, they can get to every, Thing about me, um, but if anyone's interested in that, you can find it at www.insight-quiz.com. Awesome, Motasha. Well, thank you so much for being on the Learner's Corner today. Thank you. My pleasure. Caleb J. Mason, that was a great episode. Thanks so much for doing that interview. But I got I'm just curious. I got to know. You've been talking about this book for a while. Um, you did the interview. Uh, what's something you've taken away from this whole thing, whether it's the book or from her? So for me, I think it's really the, the, one of the key things that I took away from it is just not living in self-denial about the truth that you find out about yourself. I think there's a tendency that we see the ugliness in ourselves or see things that we don't want to see and we tend to ignore them. And I think, and you know, we talked, we talked about that in details of how to become more self-aware and stuff like that in our conversation. But one of the things, one of the quotes that really stood out to me in the book um, was one of the, it's a, it's a quote from the book that she quoted someone else from saying. And it's sure. from uh, Francis Hardinge. And it's this, it is most perilous to be a speaker of truth. Sometimes one must choose to be silent or be silenced. But if a truth cannot be spoken, it must be at least known. Even if you dare not speak truth to others, never lie to yourself. And I think that's just one of the key things that I think all of us could just take away is do not deceive ourselves into thinking just because we don't go looking for the truth about ourselves that it doesn't exist. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, for doing the interview and for sharing and what your thoughts are. But hey, listen, this was a great episode. Um, if you want to continue to listen to this podcast, if you want to follow all of the episodes that we have coming up, the best way to do that is to hit the subscribe button. It's super easy to do. Um, it, we don't get paid for that. We don't get anything from that except for you get to hear all of our new episodes. Super easy to do. Another thing that you can do is to leave a rating and write a review. It's seriously the best way. Um, if we've brought you value on this podcast, if, if this is a, a show that you can find yourself turning to over and over again, we don't need, we don't need money. Um, but if you would be willing to leave a rating and write a review, it seriously does help a ton in the iTunes metrics and ratings. It just does. Um, it's a great thing. Again, shout out to Sam Massey who created some awesome new music for us, which you're about to hear again as we close out our episode. Um, shout out to him. He did a great job. Again, if you would like to contact him to have him do any type of work for your business, organization, your radio program, uh, or even a podcast you're, that maybe you're running, you can't have our music, but he can make you some dope stuff. Check out the show notes. Until next time. Keep learning, keep growing.